Welcome to the Empowered Investor Podcast. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by the sheer volume of choices and voices telling you how to plan or invest for your future? With his straightforward approach, host Keith Matthews of Tulette Matthews and Associates cuts through the noise to help you create a winning action plan for you and your family. The decision-making framework discussed in this show can transform you and your investment experiences and will increase your odds of becoming financially secure. Learn more and subscribe today at tma-invest.com. Welcome to this new episode of the Empowered Investor Podcast. My name is Ruben Antoine, and I'm joined by my co-host, Marcelo Taboada. Marcelo, how are you today? Ruben, I'm great. This is our first intro together. I'm super excited about today's episode. I think people are going to love it, and I certainly can't wait to share the episode. I'm looking forward to it as well. So we're going to cover a very interesting subject today. We are going to discuss about the crucial planning stages for doctors. So first of all, we're going to start with tax and financial planning matters that concern young doctors. And then we're going to discuss about uh, those matters as well regarding mid-career doctors. And also then at the end of the episode, we're going to also look at pre-retirees and retired doctors. So I think it's going to be very interesting. And to help us with those topics, we have an expert on the show. Marcelo, can you tell us a bit about our guest? Sure. So we have today the pleasure of interviewing Ricardo Zerbino from Baker Tilly. Ricardo is a fantastic professional and he's an even nicer human being. I know I've had the pleasure to work with Ricardo on a few files over the years and he's just really good at what he does. So Ricardo is a tax principal at Baker Tilly. He is also a guest professor at McGill and he's heavily involved in two charities. So he is involved in the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and also at Motion Ball, which is an organization that raises awareness for the Special Olympics. So all in all, a well-rounded professional who gives back to the community. Definitely. I can see that he's involved in many uh, initiatives for the community. And actually, being a CPA, I often get the newsletter from the CPA order. And I did notice last year that he won an award for his volunteering, a CPA volunteer award. So he seems to be a very nice guy. So Marcelo... Why are we talking about this subject? I think it's extremely important, Ruben, because doctors, they need a lot of planning throughout their careers. And what I loved about the episode is that we try to do, like you said, the crucial stages for every single stage that they go through. So for example, you have young doctors who just graduated. You go from earning $80,000 to earning huge amounts of money, right? So there are implications for that. So should you incorporate? What should you be doing in terms of financial planning? Then mid-career, you start gearing up for retirement and thinking about your longer term plan. So we've covered that as well. And then, you know, later stages, you know, the sequence of where your money should come from when you have RSPs, TFSAs, corporation. And then, you know, later on, we talk about some of the estate planning strategies that we have available to us. So all in all, it's a great episode. Whether you're a young doctor or a mid-career doctor, I think there's something in there for everybody. And I can't wait to share it. Like I said, I think we got a great episode here. I do agree. And uh, even if we are going to talk about doctors, I think a lot of the principles we're going to cover can be applied for any other high earners or incorporate professionals. So, A hundred percent. Exactly. Okay, so I'm really looking forward to it, Marcelo. Enjoy the episode. Enjoy. Ricardo, good morning. Thank you for joining us this fine morning. Thank you for taking the time. Ruben and I really appreciate it. 
we're excited to have you here. It's going to be a great show. So let me get started with a very basic question. So we're going to break down this episode in three parts. We're going to break it down in young doctors, mid-career doctors, and a retired doctor. We're going to go through the various issues. So hopefully you can shine some light in some of the issues that these doctors have in different stages. So I think the first question I want to ask you is, as a doctor, young doctor is transitioning from school to a career, that transition to full-time doctors can have its challenges, can have its advantages as well. So what challenges do you see in your experience young doctors having in early in their careers? Good morning, first off, Marcelo and then Ruben. <laughs> Good morning. So what a, what a transition it is. It's a really big change. You're going from all this uh, intense studying to a really fast-paced career. From a financial perspective, especially, there, there really is a lot to think about. You're making a substantial amount more money than you were prior to graduating. And it really can be very difficult to manage all the different pressures. And, and we see that very often in practice where those pressures become overwhelming and that causes a lot of stress in a young doctor's life. Right. And there is some debt management to be done, of course. You know, we see a lot of young doctors graduating with a lot of debt and now their incomes are like extremely different from when they were residents or just students, right? So with interest rate being so low, what advice would you have for them? Or is it a bit of both? What do you think about this? Yeah, I think this answer is quite different for everyone. If you do have the appetite for a small amount of risk, there is the potential for a very large return because debt to a certain extent can be very, very beneficial if the interest rates remain low, especially as low as they are right now. So a return on your investment is likely and the interest is deductible from a tax perspective. So this is kind of a unique situation, Marcelo isn't likely to occur in any other stage of your career. Therefore, it's probably a good idea to take advantage of this right now. And I do think that this isn't for everyone. Each situation should be studied to make sure uh, the right decision is made for each individual. Yeah, Rick, I guess what you're saying, and I completely agree with you, is if someone wants to not pay their debt and invest instead, because over the long term, there is a better chance in terms of probability that the investment will perform better than the interest rate, they can do that. But this is basically like doing leverage investing because you're keeping some debt that you're not paying down and you're investing in yourself. So it's not for everyone, but I totally see what you're saying where, you know, some people, they just don't like debt. Even if it would make sense for them to invest instead, if they don't like it, they will not sleep well at night because they know they have that 100,000, 200,000 of student debt then maybe it's better for them to pay down. But to other people, it may make sense. So it's funny. We get that question often. So I'm really happy that you, you are giving your perspective on that. Exactly. Exactly. Not for everyone, but could be beneficial. Just generally speaking, because we are talking about debt, but just cash flow management, uh, generally speaking, because what we see sometimes with young doctors is that they've worked hard. They spend, on average, more time at school studying compared to maybe uh, other paths that we can follow at university. So they will spend all that time delaying gratification, right? They are studying hard and they are not making that much money. So they are not yet entering the lifestyle of other people where they will be buying their houses and their cars after studying. So sometimes what we see too with some young daughters is when they are done, all that delay gratification, they want to enjoy it 
really quick, really fast. And sometimes some of them, they go and they will buy the big house right away. They will buy expensive cars, even if they have some debt. So what are your take on that in terms of how they should maybe manage the cash flow, ensuring they are being careful, but at the same time, they are going from earning maybe 80K to 400,000, depending on the specialization. So do you have any advice on how they should do that and what they should be careful about? Yes. Uh, I mean, of course, that change in lifestyle is dramatic and, and can be very difficult. I think staying focused on your career objectives and seeking professional assistance as early as possible in your career uh, is the key. It's impossible to be an expert in every domain. So having the right people in place really gives you the peace of mind to be able to excel at, at your job, which is so important and requires a significant amount of focus. This is what people like us are here for. It's really to help with these type of decisions and ensure the peace of mind for young doctors and, and anyone else really in, in that type of situation. Definitely, definitely. I agree with you that the doctors, they have their own expertise and we see some of them, they do have uh, some financial interest. They like reading about it. But at the end of the day, most of them are really busy. And if they are willing to delegate some part of the management of their finances to people they trust, I mean, they are better equipped to make some good decision at the beginning of their career. Definitely. That will pay off over the long term. We've seen also, Ruben, that some doctors sometimes early in their careers, they hear other doctors in their profession. I'm sure you, Ricardo, have heard the same where there is a misconception about certain things, you know, like maybe you should pay all your debt before you start investing and the vehicles that they have available to them, like the RRSP, like when you're doing, if, if I can go back to the question of debt versus investing is when you start using those vehicles like the RRSP, you're not only getting the big tax deduction at a very high marginal tax rate, you're also getting the long-term return of the stock market or whatever investment you choose. And sometimes you need a professional, even if there's a behavioral side to it and people are not comfortable with that, you need a professional to explain to you in very simple terms, like the two scenarios. And then, you know, if you decide to go against or with them, that's a different story, but at least you're making an informed decision. Precisely. And I think also a lot of what they hear from the rumor mill or from the other professionals, it could have been very good advice in the 1980s or in the 1990s. And something very, very useful back then may no longer be in effect right now. The tax laws changed so quickly and everything, even the interest rates, I mean, they're so different that it can cause a real uh, different strategy right now for young doctors. Rick, you just mentioned tax and relating to tax, there's a question, I mean, more or less related, but there's a question we get often as well from young doctors is that whole incorporation. You know, I always get that question where they will ask me, everyone around me, all my peers, they are incorporating the company, they are creating their company. So should I do it? When should I do it? What are the pros and cons? So let, let me ask you, do you think that all doctors should be incorporated and if it's yes, when they should be starting to think about that? Yeah, again, I, I will never give a definitive Look yes at or you, no. the typical accountant, uh, <laughs> always answering, it depends. <laughs> it depends. It really does depend, though. And a lot of the advantages are no longer available. So I really don't think the answer is the same for everyone. Timing is really everything here. And generally, the corporation discussion happens when the doctors start to have excess funds. 
before this point, a corporation doesn't really have much use and should be tabled until... until what do you mean by that? When they can save in the corporation, is that what you mean? Yeah, I mean, if they're using every dollar that they're making of a corporation, it just doesn't have much I use. See, yeah. So those excess funds in the corporation are what signifies that the timing is right. And incorporation still has some definitive pros. It can still be used as a tax deferral vehicle and shelters some of the liability of the individual because a corporation is still treated as a separate entity in Canada. However, corporations do come with additional costs and some administration. So without the proper setup, I think administering a corporation can be cumbersome and costly and add to an already overwhelming workload for a young doctor. So it's very important that the setup is, is done correctly. And if that's the case and there's excess funds, I think as a tax deferral vehicle, it can be excellent. And just to clarify, by tax deferral, you mean that because the corporation is being taxed, but at a lower rate, a young doctor may have more money to invest in the corporation right away instead of being paid directly at a higher tax rate, so they would have a lower amount to invest. Is that what you're referring to? Absolutely. So if a doctor takes the money directly at the individual level, they'll be taxed at a very high rate. Uh, any funds that are left in the corporation will be taxed at a much lower rate, leaving you with a larger piece of the pie to invest in. Okay, makes sense. Makes sense. So what you're saying basically is if I'm a young doctor and I'm bringing in, let's say, 400000 and I'm spending every dollar I'm making and I'm stuck with a huge tax bill at the end of the year, maybe it's not smart to incorporate. But if I'm not spending every dollar I'm making and I'm left with a big amount that I'm just saving in regular vehicles, maybe it would make sense to incorporate, right? Because you have that avenue where that money you're saving is not going to get taxed at the personal level, which could be up to like a 52% marginal tax bracket, right? Absolutely. It's important here. So we're talking about excess funds and there's no real magic number. But I think once you have enough left over to administer the corporation uh, and there's still you know, some funds being left over in the corporation that will give you a, this lower tax rate, I think that's when you can start taking advantage of this. So let's use this to kind of switch gears to the next stage, let's say, in the career of a doctor and let's say the mid-career doctors. And we are talking about the corporation, Rick. And a couple of years ago, there were a couple of tax regulation change that affected some of the advantages doctors, but all entrepreneurs, most of entrepreneurs have when they have a corporation. In Quebec, for example, corporations don't have access to the small tax rate if they don't reach a certain numbers of hours worked. And there is a lot of other regulation change on the tax side regarding the income you will earn from investment that you own in a corporation. So does it still make sense for a doctor to incorporate when you take all those uh, new changes that created, let's say, tax disadvantage that removes some of the incentive to incorporate? So does it still make sense for doctors to incorporate? Yes, this one I can answer uh, straight up without saying it <laughs> No, depends. it depends. <laughs> so yes, absolutely. And the reason being what we just alluded to, that tax deferral component of a corporation still exists. So very broadly, any funds that are left over, so any excess funds in a corporation on a given year will be subject to tax at a much lower rate than funds that would have been extracted directly to an individual. As you were alluding to those reforms that passed and the, the passive income and the minimum hours in Quebec, 
yes, they, there are disadvantages or, or uh, no longer tax advantages that, that used to exist. In very broad terms, again, splitting income with a spouse or another related party is just no longer possible. The tax rate is slightly higher for corporations in Quebec that don't have more than three employees. It's actually by hour. It's 5,500 hours, but we say three employees because when you have three employees, usually the hours are above the 5,500 threshold and you do get the lower tax rate. So from a general perspective, there are some advantages that no longer exist, but the deferral component is still substantial and shouldn't be ignored. And the tax rate is still lower. So there is a possibility of deferring tax for many, many years into the future. And therefore, a corporation does still make sense. I see. So not as advantageous as before, but there's still some advantages that justify an incorporation. Still substantial ones, I would say. Okay. Yes. So I think that that's a great segue for the next question that I had. And a lot of doctors and financial professionals, I think, struggle with this one because it's never a clear cut. Like you said, it depends. But as a mid-career doctor, your income is very high. What is the most efficient way of saving for retirement? So you're going to have some money left in the corporation, of course, but should you still use RRSPs? Should you do it just in the corporation? What are your thoughts around that? I'm a big proponent of the RSP. I think any social advantage a government like Canada gives you should be used and can be used to its maximum. So as a first step, even if you do have a corporation, maxing out your RSP is likely the best option. It usually results in the highest tax savings, given the changes to corporate tax rates we just discussed. So in, in Quebec, right, you lose the, the small business deduction if the corporation doesn't have 5,500 hours of salary. So given that, the higher tax savings will always come from, from the RSP. So maxing that out first is certainly a good option. One of the challenges we have seen, individuals are not really thrilled with the administration around this. They need to take dividends out every year so they can max out the RSP. And then that can get cumbersome as well if the setup is not there for dividends to be taken out. One of the practical solutions we do around this type of problem is, is a lump sum a few years later. So in year three or in year five, once the RSP room has accumulated, one dividend could be paid and we can max out the RSP at any given point in time, which lowers a bit of the administration and kind of simplifies the process because you only do it once every couple of years. That's a really good point. I never thought of that. It's like maxing the RSP, but balancing, uh, you know, not the friction, but all the headaches of the yearly administration that comes with it. So you do it once in a while, every three years. That's a really good point. But on that, uh, Marcelo, I would like to add something because I do get that question as well from my client where they are like, should I invest in the corp or in the RSP? And what you just said, really is exactly that. Over the long term, the RSP have been proven to make sense. But there's also a regulatory risk of keeping money in the corporation because government change every time and they tend to change tax law. We saw that a couple of years ago. And it may happen again, especially after all the support that was given because of COVID, you know. So we need to go and get some money somewhere. And having a lot of wealth in corporation are really popular for politicians to go after compared to if they were to change rule in RSPs. Most people have RSPs, so they will have millions of voters who will be angry. So they should not be touching that. But a corporation 
things can change again in the future. So just by moving money out from the corporation to put in RSP, it's also mitigating against that regulatory risk. So I thought I would add that because it's not tax related, but I think it's a good point to mention. That's a great point, Ruben. But we also agreed not to talk about politics. So you kind of did that today, but I, that's okay. I, I didn't name any. I didn't name any go- <laughs> any parties. I just say government. <laughs> but this is true. It's it's easier to vilify people making money and corporations. You know that you see now in the campaign. Uh, I saw today in the news that the liberals want to charge taxes on the banks. It's actually a very good marketing technique. They're not calling it a tax, they're calling it a recovery dividend. So that was interesting. (laughs) I think the doctors are in even more unique position because they're small business owners and professionals, which are two of the groups that are often, um, not going to use the word targeted, but are often the, uh, the result of a lot of the tax changes. So they need to be very careful. I think that's an excellent point. And the RSP does allow you to pull out a lot of money from uh, from the corporation. So now that I think we all agree that uh, RSP, it's a good tool for saving and investing while also doing the corporation. Well, now, Rick, to invest in the RSP, you need to take the money out. So good doctors and everyone who owns a corporation, they can take money out by paying themselves a salary or a dividend. So... I know that people are always asking themselves, what should I do, you know, and they, as the accountant, and the accountant always say, it depends, it depends, as usual. So, so just run us through, I'm going to ask you for the general rule of thumb, but I do agree that every unique situation needs to be looked at. But what would be the general rule of thumb and just general pro and cons from paying yourself a dividend versus paying yourself a salary? Uh, yes, the age-old question, salary exactly. versus dividend. <laughs> So it depends. (laughs) I'm kidding. kidding. The best answer to this type of question is usually to take out enough salary to maximize the social benefits. So for instance, the Quebec pension plan. And for sure, you want to maximize your RSP contribution room. Then you would convert to dividends on any amounts above this because they're taxed at a lower tax rate. So I guess that's the general rule of thumb. The pros and cons for each are very similar. Just the salary does allow you to contribute to these plans, whereas dividends do not. But the pro of a dividend is that it's taxed at a lower rate. I would say that's the the general rule. If an IPP is part of your future plans as well, it's important to take out enough salary because or else you won't be able to set one up in the future either. So that's another important aspect of the salary. I think specific for uh, doctors and uh, in general. I'm glad you mentioned the IPP because that was my, my next question. So... If you're a doctor now in in the middle of your career, you've settled on the debate between RSPs, you're saving through the corporation, you're maxing your RSPs, you're doing all the right things. So walk me through the IPP. Like, what are your thoughts on setting one? What is it? Who, why, and when? Yeah, of course. I mean, I I think an IPP is is an excellent way for an owner-manager, and and specifically, it it really does work well with doctors, to use corporate funds. So therefore, you you use uh, pre- high-tax funds, I guess, to invest in a pension without going really into the nitty-gritty. An IPP is great for business owners who hit their RSP contribution limit, and they kind of need an alternate way to build retirement income while still using a tax shelter, a tax sheltering umbrella, let's say. Typically, uh, an IPP starts to become interesting after 45 years old uh, or so. It's it's just a kind of a general rule of thumb again. 
And it really can be a great retirement tool if certain criteria are met. So it's, it's really important to speak with your advisors, ensuring this pension plan works for you. Then you, you can use this alternate type of way to create retirement income that can be very beneficial and a great way to lead into your retirement. So just for clarity, the uh, IPP is the individual pension plan, right? Correct. I thought I defined that for the listeners. So Rick, what you're saying is the individual pension plan or the IPP, the criteria it has to have is that you have to have some RSP room, therefore you have to have some salary over the years before you can even begin thinking about one, right? Yes, absolutely. You need the T4 income, as it's called. So salary that's reported annually on, on a T4 statement. When you're a doctor who's set up a corporation, you had to have paid yourself salary over the years or else this has no way of working. And then I guess the one thing that it's important to mention is that once you've set the IPP, that replaces the RRSP. So instead of you contributing to the RRSP, you would be contributing to the individual pension plan or the IPP, right? Correct. And the contribution room is typically higher than uh, it would have been in an RRSP. Sure. That's very important to know that. So is that the main advantage? If we take a doctor, for example, now we went through, they have a corporation, they have some wealth they have accumulated in the corporation. They have an RSP and they contributed to the RSP uh, to the maximum or not, but they have some wealth in there as well. Now the IPP, the main advantage, which is basically a pension plan, but for that own individual. So the main advantage is what? Is that they can contribute way more than they could in the RSP. But at the end of the day, it's like having another tax-deferred investment account. Is that what we are saying? Yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. It's really the way to get the maximum pension that Canadian tax law allows. Yeah, it's a way to create more contribution room above and beyond an RSP and allow you to contribute a little bit more and continue contributing uh, until uh, age 65, let's say. I see. Okay, it's like... A- Boosted RSP. Exactly. Very well put. (laughs) Okay, perfect. We are talking about pension plan, and this is a good transition to retirement. Let's talk now about the latest stage in the financial life of a doctor, which will be when they are entering retirement and being retired. So the third stage, let's call it. So, you know, like we said, you're a doctor, you've worked hard all your life, so you've built wealth in your corporation. And now you're in retirement. So what should they be thinking about in retirement? What are the challenges? And regarding the corporation itself, Rick, is it still a good tool to keep doing retirement? What are your thoughts around that? Usually at this stage of their careers, uh, doctors and their corporations specifically have become investment vehicles. Lifestyle plays a big part here. For everybody, it's slightly different depending on, on how much you need to live and, and what kind of a lifestyle you, you wish to continue living. We do see many live off their other investments. So they leave the corporation as an investment vehicle. It continues to have investments and earn investment income on its holdings, but you can still live off your other investments like the ones we just mentioned, the RSP, the IPP, if there's any TFSAs or any other investments you have or assets you have at the personal level. You uh, usually would try and live off those first while the corporation continues earning investment income. And you'll use that in the future or hopefully have uh, even enough money for an estate plan or something of that sort. 
So I guess all the consideration and different aspects we would look at for any other professionals or retirees, which is doing some financial planning, looking at where to start taking money. When you have different parts, like you said, you have a corporation, you have a TFSA, you have an RSP, you maybe have a non-reg. From where should you start withdrawing and when? So that whole sequence of withdrawal in a tax-efficient way to fund your retirement. So all those general considerations that we need to look at for all type of retirees will apply as well to doctors. So that's where the financial guide can come handy. But you mentioned estate planning. So do you have any perspective? What's your view on what should doctors be looking at and be careful about regarding estate planning? So an estate plan often does come into play if the intention is to hand over or integrate the next generation. Basically, this freezes the value of the company at a point in time, and all the future appreciation of the company would be with the next generation after the freeze. The frozen shares, as they're called, are held by the original owner. So in this case, the doctor who incorporated 30 years ago, they have an equal value to whatever the corporation was worth at the time of the freeze. This allows the corporation to continue paying dividends up to that value. And really, the tax is only applied on the dividends that are paid. So you can use this as an income smoothing tactic as a retiree. And any value really is is only taxed upon death, which again, hopefully is many, many years down the line. And the future appreciation of this company, as we said, will be with whoever it was frozen for. So the, the continuing shareholders. Is the estate freeze a strategy that every doctor should be looking at? I mean, granted that there is a family there to be leaving these assets, or is this something that really depends on what the person wants to do? What do you see in your experience? Both. I think, yeah, not every single person should do an estate freeze. It really depends on your intentions. If you want to, I guess, freeze the tax liability at death, you can do that with an estate freeze. If you want to integrate the next generation, if you don't mind any of those things, and and maybe there is no next generation, or maybe you need all of that money in in your lifetime, then maybe there's no use for an estate freeze. So really, it comes down to analyzing each situation and tailoring these type of plans for each person. We do see scenarios where, I mean, it could happen that a doctor gets to a point in his life where... He's retired and he says, you know, I'm just going to enjoy all the fruits of my labor and not leave anything to my estate. I mean, it could happen, right? So in that case, the estate freeze becomes futile, right? Absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with that. After working so hard for so many years, you should benefit from uh, the fruits of your labor. It's important to say also, I think, Ruben, that this is like on top of all the basic estate planning, like having a proper will and all that. So I think we have to mention that because it's not the only strategy that they should be following, right? I completely agree. I mean, when you talk about estate planning, the basic first area to be looking at for everyone is do you have a will? Do you have a mandate? Because if you don't have that, then there is some issue that can come uh, around when when you pass away, uh, way before you start thinking about, you know, saving the last tax liability on death, estate freeze and other strategies. So the first thing we ask all our clients, doctors or not, is do you have a will? Do you have a mandate? And if not, we're going to help you uh, put that in place. Right. So Rick, I wanted to ask you also, like one of the things, you know, we talked about how sometimes doctors hear rumors about something or it's something that it's been done in the last 30 years, but may not be applicable Today, I do hear often from young doctors, for example, their parents are also doctors and they have set up a family trust. 
What are your thoughts around that? And do they still make sense? Solely from a tax perspective, I'm going to answer this question in that direction first. So from a tax perspective, family trusts used to be considered because they were great tax deferral vehicles. This is unlikely to result in any current tax benefits because these professional corporations are really unlikely to be sold. Therefore, you can't shelter any capital gain. And that's really the, call it the last, the surviving tax benefit from a trust today. Income splitting with family members is no longer what's called allowed. So it doesn't, it doesn't result in any tax savings anymore. So it really renders the trust ineffective for doctors and people with professional corporations that can't be sold. In the past, they were still used as income splitting vehicles. But I think solely from a tax perspective, the family trust doesn't make sense for these type of professional corporations. There may be other reasons to set up a trust, legal reasons, or if there's any, you know, you want to... Asset protection. An asset protection as well. But in this type of situation, it's really hard to see a benefit. Okay, interesting. I see. Unless there's a very specific non-tax reason. If you want to give X amount of money to X person and have someone be a trustee and monitor that, then sure. But uh, that doesn't result in any tax savings, I would say. Mm, very interesting. So the tax regulation is being changed, not against, but I guess many incentives are being removed regarding corporation and trust compared to the past, right? Yes, absolutely. It feels like every six months there are new regulations <laughs> or new, new proposals, at least. Not all of them get accepted. The many proposals to certainly diminish the use of the corporation and the trust and any vehicle that was once used as a tax saving or tax deferral is currently being looked at. There are still many advantages, but we do need to be careful and keep an eye on the ever-changing tax laws to make sure we still have benefits from doing these things. If not, you know, they'll be all rendered ineffective and we can basically stop any tax planning, but hopefully we don't get to that point. Does this make your job more interesting or give you more headaches? <laughs> It depends. depends. <laughs> It depends. Yeah, I think both. Sometimes uh, interesting, sometimes... Yeah, 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 I can imagine. Rick, thank you so much for your time, your expertise. We've worked in a few files together and I can attest to how easy it is to work with you. You're great with clients. And I do thank you for taking the time and sharing all your wealth of knowledge with us. Ruben, I think the key takeaway here is the importance of, and we didn't even mention it in the podcast, but the importance of working with an advisor and people like us is that we end up adding peace of mind in the process. And that's something that it's sometimes overlooked that when you have a structure and everything is set up properly, it adds peace of mind to the client. And I think that's one of the added benefits of what we do. So I don't know if you have any comments on that, but that's my takeaway. Yeah, no, me, my key takeaways, and Rick, I will echo what uh, Marcelo just said. Thanks a lot. Uh, it was really insightful. I learned a lot, so I will definitely uh, be sharing some of what I've learned today with my doctor's client. And uh, yeah, my key takeaways are very similar to yours, Marcelo, but it's really, uh, we go to see our doctor because we trust them when we have a question on our health or when we We need help. So the doctors, I invite them, you know, there's a lot of information on the internet. A lot of them have interest to read about it, but do not hesitate. 
when they feel that there is some confusion to uh, speak with their accountant and their lawyers, their advisors, and get guidance so that they don't make uh, costly errors and they are well set up for the future. All right. So, Rick, before I let you go, I'm going to ask you for your takeaway. I'm going to push you here, put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> I think having the right people in place gives you peace of mind and allows you to excel at your job. I think that's the real important thing here. And uh, yeah, it, it was really a pleasure doing this with both of you as usual. So for sure, uh, Marcelo, it's been many years we worked together and it's always, always the same. I echo all of your comments and really it was a pleasure. And I thank you both for the opportunity. Thanks, Rick. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Empowered Investor Podcast, hosted by Keith Matthews. Please visit tma-invest.com to subscribe to this podcast, learn more about how his firm helps Canadian investors, or to request a complimentary copy of The Empowered Investor. Investments and investing strategies should be evaluated based on your own objectives. Listeners of this podcast should use their best judgment and consult a financial expert prior to making any investment decisions based on the information found in this podcast.